Father, in the name of Jesus, your son, we thank you for your blessings and goodness. We thank you for your spirit that you have given him to us, not only in us, Lord, but through us and in the church. Lord, we pray that uh, he will teach and he will show us and highlight things within your scripture. Lead us to Jesus, Lord. Point him out in the scripture. Show us, Lord, more things about us and the need for him and our desire, Lord, that would be that we would lay down our own very lives, Lord, our own nature and our sin, and pick up our cross and follow him. So, Lord, we thank you. We ask you that you give us the courage, wisdom, uh, Lord, the discernment to know, uh, Lord, not how we feel about this passage, but, Lord, to ask the question, is it true, and is this something that I have to do? So, Lord, I ask that you would help us to discern that and to understand your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, and I did have to tell you this, it is not a fun chapter, um, so there won't be a lot of laughter, per se, in a sense of feel good. It would be a tough message to hear, because if you hear it from the Holy Spirit, if you hear it from men, it'll, it'll be uh, somewhat palatable, but if you hear it from the Holy Spirit, and he knows exactly how to teach us then it'll be right, and it'll be good. But I did have to tell you, it is extremely convicting um, because I had to live with this for about a week. So it's time for you to share in my convictions, per se. Uh, but it is, it is it's a very straightforward chapter and a very straightforward message, and I uh, hope we can catch not only the flavor of it, but the insights that the Lord gives us. Let's, let's read chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are without excuse. Every man of you or every one of you who passes judgment for in that you judge another you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on upon those who practice such things and do you suppose this O oh man when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and you do the same thing yourself that you will escape the judgment of God or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of the Lord leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and of your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance, very, very important word here. We're going to talk about that when we go through verse 7. Those who by continual action, could be translated, in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. For there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil to the Jew first and also for the Gentiles, for the Greek, but also, I'm sorry, but glory and honor and peace to every man who does good to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law also will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who did not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law or a law to themselves, 
but in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts uh, alternately accusing or also defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of man through Jesus Christ. So it's uh, loaded. We're only going to go 16 verses, and even that, it's uh, iffy. But we are all guilty. The title of the message today, we are all guilty. And I hope you got that from Paul, not from me. We are all guilty. We are reading a letter, and Paul is describing, in a very real way, the gospel. But the gospel begins not with the news that you would think you would hear. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He doesn't start with that. It's interesting. It's, it's uh, unlike the messages we hear today. He starts with something that none of us like to hear, and that is we are all guilty. And he deals with the gospel first. And the first part about the gospel is that there's bad news. If you didn't get that part right, then uh, we have to start from the beginning. First three chapters, roughly three and a half, uh, uh, two and a half, Halfway through chapter 3, there's a switch in the direction that Paul's making. But the first three chapters or so, it's all about the sins of men and the wrath of God. And we dealt with chapter 1 already. I'm not going to go through that. It took a while to get through one chapter. Chapter 2 should be a little bit easier as we've laid down some good foundations. But chapter 2 and chapter 3 is a really good chapter, especially dealing with sin in your own life sin in other people's life when you're witnessing to someone, especially when you share with people that are highly moral or highly uh, respectable, you would say. They don't, they don't do the outright sinful behavior that maybe we see in other people. This is, these two chapters, chapter 2 and 3, are great to show people. This is what Paul is showing, that yes, chapter 1 is idolatry of the nations. We see how it revolves around immorality. That was all chapter 1. People became depraved in their thinking and in their bodies acted on that depravity. And so they polluted their mind, they polluted their bodies, and therefore now they're in a sinful state and that the judgment of God will come, the Bible says. The wrath of God will come. And so the person who is reading chapter 1, they have to accept the reality that they have a disease, if you want to call it that way, and it is sin. In sin, Paul is writing to a church, by the way, so it's quite interesting. He's not writing to an unbelieving church or an unbelieving nation or an unbelieving group. He's actually talking to Christians about sin. And that's quite an interesting thing, isn't it? Because we are also need to know, we also need to be reminded of sin. Not necessarily to live in sin, but to remind ourselves if there is any sin that we continually, habitually considered to be ours and considered to be doing all the time, then God is addressing the sin issue. And the, sin, the gospel always begins with sin. You always begin, you would say, with the bad news. There's no way a respectable person will ever understand the grace and the love of Jesus unless they understand there is judgment and there is sin and there is um, basically uh, depravity in our own hearts. If you show a respectable person the need for grace and mercy and love, they go, well, I kind of already have that because I just, I just do that. Uh, but they're not born again. They're just a really good, respectable, moral person. They won't know the need for a Savior unless you show them the need for a Savior. And that comes through the understanding of sin. So that's what chapter two, uh, chapter 1 has been about. This is what he's describing. Paul is writing 
and he's writing through a secretary, right? He's writing, Paul's not writing this letter. Uh, he's writing it, uh, a secretary, an amanuensa, they call them in Greek, would be writing this, and there are no chapter divisions. So it's not like Paul was saying, okay, you got chapter one done? Okay, good. Let's start with chapter two. That's what we would think, right? Well, chapter two, you know, therefore, you are without excuse. No, he didn't say that. He kept on talking. He kept on preaching, as you would say. And the writer, the Emmanuel, the secretary, just kept writing. So chapter two begins where chapter one left off. We had chapter divisions in our Bibles because a thousand years ago, somebody decided it was a good idea. And I don't know how you feel about it, but sometimes it's great. Sometimes I'm torn. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes I think, man. That really blocks my mind. <laughs> you know, that's just me. I just, I just think in compartments. So if I think for a man, it's kind of hard because we think in compartments, and so we don't, I'm done with chapter one. I don't have to think about it. Then chapter two begins, but it's a thought. It's a continual thought. So let's read verse 32 of chapter one, uh, chapter one and then read verse two of, uh, verse one of chapter two. And although they knew the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they do not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Therefore, or because of, you are without excuse. Every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who, judges, uh, for you who judge, practice the same things. So one thing for sure that is going to change is Paul is not going to talk about humanity anymore. And you see it right away in verse 2, in verse 1 of chapter 2, he's not going to talk about them. He's been saying that in chapter 1. If you notice the pronoun change in chapter 1 and chapter 2, I hope this is interesting to you guys. It's quite interesting to me. When the Bible begins to change pronouns, it's really important because we all love to talk about their sin. You know what I mean? They, that impersonal they, they are doing that. They are terrible people, and they sin, and they do those things, but not me. I'm a nice, respectable church attendee, right? They, chapter 1, they do those things, and rightly so. Paul is addressing the issue of the Gentiles, the nations, the immorality and the impurity. But you notice in chapter verse 1 right away, he doesn't talk about they. He says, you. Why? It's like the Holy Spirit has taken a telescope and said, this is chapter one. Look at the world. Look at the telescope. And then in chapter two, he hands you a microscope. And then it says, now you look in and see what you find. Anybody notice that? Okay, we're good? Okay, that's how it's changed. So one thing for sure that changes from the chapters, even though there wasn't there originally, is you go from a telescope to a microscope. So guess what chapters people don't like? Chapter two. Or chapter 3, because Paul just keeps handing you a microscope, keeps handing you a microscope, and it says, what about the telescope? What about them? Well, they, they got their problem. But you've got to make sure you're not in that same problem. But I attend church, and I do all the right things. Yes, but if you do those things and yet talk about them, but you do the same, the Bible calls you very, very, uh, very uh, straightforward name. Hypocrite. A hypocritos. A a, an actor, a fake, somebody who says one thing and actually behaves in a different way. It actually behaves the way that they, others are being condemned by you. You condemn them. Look how terrible they are, sleeping around and all this stuff. 
and then look at you and your imagination and your thought life and how you live, wouldn't that be the same except or maybe you don't have the conviction to act out on it, but you live it in your mind and your imagination. It's just the same. They might even get more credit because they're acting on their conviction. But if you think about those things and don't act on it, you really are a hypocrite because you don't even act on it. You just like to think about it. You see the point? Okay, you, your microscope, right? So Paul begins to speak about the, uh, you, not them. And then he begins to talk about the future, not the present. Chapter one was about the condition of Paul's time. Look at the immorality in the Roman Empire. I showed you that last time we were here together. Chapter two, uh, right away, he deals with the future. Look at verse five. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, of chapter two, verse five, you are storing up your wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation. There will be this day of wrath and revelation. That's at the coming of Jesus. That's the day of the Lord. There will be that day where God will unveil the secrets of man's heart, the Bible says. You know, that day there'll be no more secrets anymore. You know, like the secrets you like to keep? No, like you guys. You know, the secrets you can't even tell anybody about? The ones you whisper in the dark or do the things where nobody's around. Those secrets. There'll be none of that when Jesus comes. There'll be Everything will be exposed. And everybody will know who you really are. That's scary. Scary, it depends on the situation, isn't it? Scary in a sense of like, we don't want people to know that. We'll be too late by then. It'll be a daylight day. It'll be, it'll be as clear as daylight who you really are. Because... We tend to show a different face and a different front. We don't like to be telling people our secrets or, or maybe the things we enjoy in, in, in the dark or things that we uh, have in our hearts toward others. You know, I don't like to do that. God knows that they'll really find out that I'm, I'm a gossiper. They really find out I have grudges. Oh, they'll really find out that I'm an unforgiving person. I don't want to do that. I want to be nice and respectable behind the pulpit. I don't want people. But that day will be too late. Everybody go, you were like that? Yeah. It was just too late. It will be too late by then. That's what Paul is saying. People know that there's a day of reckoning. Even the hardest unbeliever will figure out one day that is true. But even to this day, people know that you just can't keep getting away with things. The world can't just keep going on like this. And even unbelievers know that there is a day that, you know what? Yep, there'll be one day God's going to settle. Even if they really don't believe in God or the Bible, or the scriptures, the way we would think of them, uh, they do believe that there it has to be justice. It, it just can't go on like this. Well, there will be justice. So three questions that Paul's going to ask. Who will be judged? Who will be judged? So point number one, who's going to be judged? Automatically. Them, right? <laughs> well, we're not talking about them. Remember, you got a microscope in your hand, and you got to look at your heart. Who will be judged? The second question is, what? will be judged, right? What evidence are going to be used on that day? The day that everything is exposed, what evidence, I'm sorry, what, what, yeah, what, what evidence will be used in order to judge? So what, who will be judged? What will be judged? And the third one is, what is the standard that a person will be judged by? What standard is God going to use? Is he going to grade on a curve? It's C plus average. Is that good? Got me through English class. But is it going to get me through the judgment of God? Does he, uh, 
does he just hands out A's to everybody? You know, and you know, we all envy of the kid who got the A plus, you know, or or get mad at the kid who ruined the curve, you know, those kinds of things. But it, is it is it like that? So that's the three questions: Who will be judged? What is going to be judged? And what standard is God going to use? Uh, or another question: You could say, well, what about those who are unaware of the Bible and the gospel and Jesus and the church? What about them? He's going to address that too, by the way. Good questions. Abraham asked this question of the Lord. Will the judge of all the earth do right? Will the judge of all the earth do right? That's a great hypothetical question, hypothetical question. But Abraham was right in asking that question. Will the judge of the earth do right? The answer is unreally, uh, uh, unbelievably, yes. He's totally going to do right. God will never do wrong. He'll just rightly and he'll be fair. And all that he does, he'll be absolutely fair. So we know that is true. That he, his judgment is right. He won't do wrong. He'll be fair. He'll be just in all that he does. So we can count on the fact that when we talk about judgment, it is the right judgment. It is fair and it's right. And it will be completely just to everyone in that judgment. So uh, if you were highlighting your Bible and you do that, and I encourage you to do that, key words are very, very important when you're reading and, and studying Scripture. One of the key words... And this chapter is judgment. You can highlight it when you go through it. Judgment, judgment, judgment. Another, or judge. That's judge or judgment. Have different similar words in Greek. The other one is the word do or doing or done. Right? They're all used. They're key words that will help you catch on to chapter 2. Judge and judgment and do, doing, or done will be the major highlights of this chapter. So once you got that, you're pretty much ready to start breaking down the text. So Paul is speaking about something very, very dreadful in the human condition, hypocrisy. The human nature loves to point out the sins of other people. That's human nature. We love to talk about them. Again, them, they. Anyone here? They, them? Anybody here from that group? Okay. All right. We love to hear about them. We don't like to hear about me or you in a sense. We love to hear about them. But it is human nature to point out the faults in someone else's life with the fact that you are guilty of the same thing. And in fact, if you're guilty of the same thing, you tend to really project on them what you don't like about you. So if you have a certain you know, weakness or areas and stuff like that, you tend to condemn that area more in people's lives. So let's say you struggle with lying. <gasps> and then you... Oh, you lie, and you lie too, and you know God hates liars. And it's like, man, this guy, this brother, is really hard on lies. I mean, we should be, but this is like over the top. Well, find out later on in that person's life, he's got an issue with lies. Or if somebody's just over the top on something, right? It is natural human nature to point the fault in Rick and say, Rick, you've got all these issues, bro, you know, and going on and on about it. Not knowing that behind closed doors, it's the issue of the heart. I have an issue of it, right? Hypocrisy. His hypocrisy is basically not practicing what you believe, what you preach. It's an attitude of the heart, right? It is true that a lot of these things are not so obvious, right? Somebody could be a very, very moral person on the outside, and you can say, well, there's something wrong with that person. It's not obvious. But... They pass on judgments on other people, right? And 
they actually end up doing the same sins. Perhaps not in the same way, but they are actually in the same sinful state and behavior that that person is doing it. The only difference is, is that's an overt situation, open and clear. And this person, it's behind closed doors. But God, is, God in the same way looks at it and says, this person is guilty of hypocrisy, and this person is guilty of actually doing it. And so we'll see in, we'll see in a moment because Paul is developing this. So um, verse 1, every man, therefore you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Paul is talking about practicing the evil things that were just chapter above, chapter 1. You want to read it again? No, that was a long list. But when you read it, you know, I was going to have you stand up. In my imagination, I thought, everybody stand up, and then we'll read the sins in chapter 1, and if there's anybody here that has not committed that, please remain standing. You know? And uh, I picture that in my mind. Please, please remain standing if you've done none of chapter 1. Well, there may be things in there you go, hmm, didn't do that, didn't do that. Then you get to some of the ones that have a heart, matter of the heart, and you begin to like, I better sit for this. <laughs> I better. So none of us will be standing. In my imagination, none of us will be standing, but that's the actual thing. We can condemn that in people's lives. We can say, oh, how dreadful. But am I guilty of some of them? It's all lumped together, so it's not like a, it's not a rating. Like these are the really bad ones. The first few are the really bad ones that you don't want to do. The other ones are okay because everybody does them anyway, you know. Gossip is all right because, hey, you know, everybody does it. Homosexuality, oh, good, terrible things. I can't have that. But are we guilty of some of the other ones lumped in together in the same conversation, right? But this is natural for somebody to condemn those things. You know who's really good at this? The Pharisees. The Pharisees were very respectable religious people who knew the Bible, and Jesus said, you're still whitewashed tombs. Very respectable religious people that came to church all the time, Pharisees. And Jesus would say to them, you are hypocrites. You don't practice what you preach. You are the hypocrites. You say that people murder. Oh, condemn the murders. But do you hate, Jesus said? Do you have grudges against others? Do you hold it against them, been angry and despise them? Well, I don't have to explain that to right too much to you. You treat people with contempt when they've done something against you? It's the same as murder. Oh, come on, Pastor. Really, I never pulled a knife. No, you might not have pulled a knife. Thank God you didn't. But you just killed that person in your heart. And according to God's law, you are guilty of it. I'll give you another example. We condemn those terrible countries that oppress people. And the, the governments like Venezuela and North Korea and all that, they oppress people. They're terrible humanitarian crisis. How dare they do that to people? Those people, they just want to keep their money and live off well. And they don't care about the, the plight of others. They don't care about the problems of others. All they care about is to remain in their lifestyle that they want to keep and they want to have. Not terrible governments. They, they do that. Well, let me ask you this. Do you spend time taking care of people that are in need? you care for the plight of the poor? Do you really think about it? Or is it more about maintaining your own lifestyle and keeping the money where you think it should go and not helping others? You see the problem? How dare those governments? 
There, forget them. They condemn them. Invade them. Yet we're guilty of the same thing, isn't it? We don't care and really, I'm, I'm talking about, I'm talking about just give people money on the freeway and stuff like that. Don't, don't get me wrong on that. Don't be, you know, common sense would say, do I care for the poor? And how do I show for, care for the poor? For those who are really in need. You know, there's people in our fellowship that have been real and really in need. And you guys have been helping them out, knowingly or unknowingly. But do we spend time really seeking out who's really in need? And it, when the need comes, do we go, you know what? I can go without Starbucks this week. Oh, no. I need my latte in the morning at 10 o'clock. I need it at 3 o'clock. I need this and that, right? And, and I can't give that away. That's their problem. They did something wrong. Well, whether they did wrong or not, that's not the point. The point is, it's not your heart toward them. Is it willing to give up your lifestyle, as it would be, or your spending habits, and spending it in something that will be care for somebody or taking care of a need? Do you see where the, the, the hypocrisy is in our lives, too? That we can condemn. And then yet, when the need is present, you go, oh, I don't know, maybe... Maybe Yanni can give him some money. Germany, right? It's a wealthy country, right? <laughs> maybe he can help. Or maybe those who live in this area can help them out. Or, and, and then we never bother to lift a finger to find out, is there a need? What is the need? And how can I help in the need? Maybe I don't have much money, but maybe I can buy him lunch or, 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 or take something that it's in my life that I really, it's just superfluous. It's just extra. And, and use it to, maybe I can share the gospel with that person. And really bring him closer to the Lord. I'm not talking about just social justice and just doing good for everybody just because of doing good. We're talking about the care and the kindness that God wants us to have in our hearts and our lives toward people. Just in general kindness. You know, no, no, no strings attached. Just willingness to help. Willingness to help. Well, the governments don't help, right? The government of Venezuela, North Korea, these evil governments. Well, I could be the same thing. Oh, condemn adultery. That's terrible. No, anybody that does that, it should be... That's wrong. But do I watch movies that glorify? You know, do I entertain thoughts in my life or even or I approve of movies that actually glorify it and go, man, that's a great movie. See that guy hooked up with that girl and her husband didn't even know. Oh, that was so cool, man. And there are people that do that. Don't get me wrong. It's not that I'm telling you guys something you don't know. We're talking about entertainment. And consulting in your mind, they go, that was a really good movie. What was it about? I don't know. She left her husband, hooked up with this guy, went to Spain, and they happily married after. You said there was adultery involved and immorality involved, and, and you thought it was a really good movie? Yeah. Well, what's the difference between the guy who just did that physically in real life and you entertaining it and loving it and saying, man, I was hoping they got together. I was hoping that's how the movie ended. You see the point? You see that that could be easily crept in our hearts. Because, man, it's just a movie. Man. You know what? If you didn't like it, you didn't want. You wouldn't watch it. <laughs> we know. You know us, right? If you didn't like it, you wouldn't watch it. And many movies are built on that, predicated on that. You know, cohabitation, immorality, adultery, homosexuality. Uh, it's all predicated on that. Are we guilty of saying? Adultery. I, I would never go that direction. No, 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 Pastor, you're wrong. I'd never do that. What's on Netflix tomorrow? Oh, yeah, that movie. Oh, Zizzly. That's really good. Good movie. Sizzle. 
the sizzle out, right? It, it just becomes hypocritical in our own lives. So that's what Paul is pointing out. You could condemn those things. Aren't you guilty of the same thing? Oh, I never do such things. Well, there are lists here, not only of physical action, but internal action, a matter of the heart. Remember, it's human nature, and Paul's writing about this. Of course, none of us are guilty of this. None of us are guilty of this, right? This is the sin in the church um, that happens most often. And most often, it's about the pastor, by the way. I know that because that's, you know, I should say, you know, people roast the pastor after, after service, you know. Oh, we didn't say that and do that. I'm beyond that point now. But the idea is this, I, they shouldn't roast me. They should invite me over for roast. That, that's I always get confused with that. Why don't you just invite me over? Instead of roasting me, invite me over for a roast. I love that. And we can talk about it. But anyway, that doesn't happen. But really, it's a plague. And gossip is listed in chapter 1, isn't it? Uh, you know what else is listed in chapter 1? Slander. Foolishness. Unreasonableness. Have you ever been unreasonable? You talk to somebody, you want to talk to them. And you, no, 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 I don't care. I don't care. And just unreasonable. You can't even deal with them. Unreasonable. How about disobedience to parents? Anyone here young enough to still have to obey their parents, live at home, things like that, right? But that is an epidemic throughout the church where kids rule the house and, and they, you know, parents have to bow and kowtow to them, right? That's, that's also wrong. So Paul is saying very clearly, we're all guilty. We're all guilty of this. There's not one person, and he's going to get into even more, that could not say, you know what? I am free from all that debris in chapter 1. None of it falls on my lap. Well, Paul is going to say that that is not true. And in fact, Jesus put it this way. Do unto others as you would like to be done unto you. Now, did you know that Confucius, the, the, the father of Confucianism, lived hundreds of years before Jesus, he said something similar. Don't do something to someone you don't want, to, you don't want it to be done to you. He, he took it the opposite way. He said it first. Don't do something to someone that you don't want it to be done to you. Jesus took it a step higher, didn't he? Do something for someone that you would like to be done. It wasn't just about the negative. Don't do, you know, I don't want to slap people. <laughs> so I, I, I don't want to get slapped. So I'm not going to slap, you know. But that's Confucianism, right? If you don't want somebody to slap you, don't do that. Right? That's basic stuff. That means that even Confucius had a degree of reason of the law in his heart to know that it was wrong to do that to someone. I don't want that to happen to me, so I'm not going to do it to them. He had a reasonable idea of the law of God in his heart. Not that he knew Christ or he knew the Lord, but he understood that there was fairness and justice that needed to be done. By the way, that's printed on our heart through our conscience. We'll read that in a moment. But Jesus said, no, do unto others what you would like to be done. What you, you would like to be done to you today. Would you like somebody to be fair with you? Would you like somebody to be kind to you? Would you like somebody to encourage you? Yeah, I do that. We'll do that. <laughs> Spend your time doing that. And you'll be fine. And God will take care of you. Do unto others, right? So the, the idea is that even the basic things we're hypocritical of it. Why? Because we don't like something to be done to us, but yet we do it to other people. 
I don't like people talk, gossiping about me. I, I wouldn't like that. Neither would you. But do I spend my time avoiding it? Or do I just like, ah, did you hear about so-and-so? And did you know about this, right? So even though we say, yeah, I don't like to be done to me. No, I wouldn't like that. We're quickly to run and do things that hurt other people without even thinking about it, right? And then you ask him, hey, did you just do that? No, not me. I didn't do that. Well, they deserved it. It was true. They did do that. They should, everybody should know what Yanni did the other day, right? <laughs> Sorry, Yanni. Pick on you. Because you're teaching tomorrow, so we're going to make sure that you're good. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that's the thinking. It, and it's, it, Pastor, you know, the question is, why do we think like that? Why do humanity think like that? We've got to go back to chapter 1. It says that professing to be wise, they became fools. Their minds have become depraved. We're so depraved in our thinking, we really don't think we're done, we're done wrong. You can tell somebody, hey, you did. No, I didn't do that. And if I did, you deserved it. And it's, it's that mentality, right? That Paul is addressing that mentality. Don't tell me that doesn't happen. You guys be shocked. Really, Pastor, this happens? Yes. You ever got an argument with your wife or your husband? That happens all the time, doesn't it? You did that? No, I didn't. Yeah, you did. Uh, well, if I did. That's because of last week and two years ago, right? And especially if you married somebody with a good memory, they would tell you the shirt you were wearing when you said that, right? So it's just that kind of, but we're all guilty of that. That's the point. Paul is addressing an issue here, right? That it is, the whole world is guilty. And you're going to see it moving on from chapter 3 when he says, all have sinned, all falling short of the glory of God. That's the point. That's, he's trying to get to that point. But human nature tells us, too, that there is no day of judgment. There is no, you know, they might agree that there's a day of judgment, but I'm not going to be in it. Right? Human nature has this interesting thing that, you ever notice where, how do I put it? You know, you talk about accidents and the rate of accidents. And do you ever think that you could be the one in that accident? Human nature, is, it's, it's, it's so weird sometimes, in my own head, because I, I would get in an accident. I can't believe that happened to me. Well, did you see the statistics? You have a very good probability of getting into a car accident. I just can't imagine it happening to me. Why not? It happens to a lot of people. I know a nurse. I knew a nurse. She's, I still know her. Works in the oncology department for cancer. And, and she got cancer. She's like, Pastor, I never thought I would get cancer. I said, isn't it interesting? You work with cancer patients all the time. But you never thought you would get it. Why is that? I just, I think everybody else should get it, not me. I mean, she didn't mean it in a bad way, but just you don't think of it that way. You, you know, like you see somebody with, you know, diabetes. You see somebody with cancer. You see somebody that's struggling in their health. And you go, oh, poor them. And then it doesn't even cross your mind. That could happen to me. I could end up in that situation, right? Human mentalities, like human nature, doesn't think that that would happen to me. So guess what we don't think is going to happen to us? Oh, skip one. Wrath. Wrath. Verse 3. Do you suppose, a man, when you pass judgment upon uh, on others who practice such things, and you do the same yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Hmm. Paul is saying, if I, if I know that God's judgment falls on those who practice such things, but I am guilty of the same thing, I think I'm not going to, I come to CCOD, there's no way I'm going to get judged, right? This is, it's being here, it's like safety, right? Uh, well, 
How do you know you're going to escape the judgment of God? Verse 4, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance of patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Well, how can you escape the judgment of God? Um, human nature doesn't believe it's going to be in judgment, but the Bible tells us there is a divine judgment, right? And so there's ways you can get out of, here on earth, you can get out of, Judgment, right? The judgment of man. You can you can flee the scene. You do something wrong, you can flee. No one knows. Shh, don't tell anybody, right? Or you can just move to another state, or you can find a good crooked lawyer to find a loophole in the law, right? And you can just kind of get away with things. But who will make you, who can help you escape the judgment of God? There's no loopholes in his law. He knows where you are at all times. And you can't escape. You can't just go to another place. He'll, he'll be there. How can you escape it? Well, you can't. That's what Paul is saying. How can you think you're going to escape it if you're doing such a thing? And here's verse 4. People suppose on something. They presume on something. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of the Lord leads you to repentance? People presume something else. God is kind. He's not going to do that. Isn't God so loving? And he just help? He can't help himself. He can't help him. He just has to love me. He, he could never, ever, ever dare to judge little lovely me because he's so kind. He's so good, isn't he? And we all agree, yeah, God is good. Absolutely he is. But is God so good that he's not going to judge you? That's the question, isn't it? Well, I, it, uh, uh, it presumes that I have done something to get into this judgment. Yes, chapter 1. And you not only approving it, but also being guilty of hypocrisy toward that. Meaning that you contemplate it in your mind. Not just in action, but also your mind. So gossip and slander and being unreasonable are things that God's pointing the finger at. And so some people say, well, I, there's no judgment. Come on, Pastor, really? We pass from judgment to life. Yes, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I reject that in the name of Jesus, what you're saying. Well, wait a minute, this is the word of God still. It says, you presume on God's kindness that it's because it's you. He's just going to let you go. Hey, don't worry about it. Wink, wink. Next you go. Like a policeman, right? Finds out you're another policeman. You know, police just pull over. Shh, not supposed to do it. But, you know, it's pulled over and they go, hey, I see your sticker. Have a good day. See you later. Right? God's not like that. Oh, you went to CCOD. You got a free pass. No matter what you did, you're good. No, it doesn't work that way. Do you assume and presume on the, on the kindness of God that this will never happen to you? And see, this is where human nature and our depraved mind sometimes can over, uh, take over that and go, not me, not me, not everybody. But wait a minute, you just told me that you are guilty of those things you talked about in chapter 1 in your imagination and thoughts. So what makes you, what makes you think you're going to escape it? Let's keep going. Verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It's interesting here. Who will render to every man according to his deeds to those who by perseverance in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality and eternal life. But those who, do, those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil for the Jew first and also for the Gentiles, but glory and honor and peace to every man who does good to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles, 
for there is no partiality with God. What is Paul saying in all this? If you don't think there's any wrath and judgment against sin and people that behave that way, then all you're doing is storing it up for later. And actually, Paul uses the same word that Jesus used about storing your treasures in heaven. Paul reverses that and he says, you know where you're storing your treasure? You can say it. Not in heaven. Hell, yes, exactly right. Don't be afraid of it. You are storing up for yourself treasures in hell. You're literally up heaping up wrath, and the treasures are going to be found in hell, not in heaven. And interesting, the way Paul uses those words, it's just things that Jesus said, and he says, you know what Jesus meant by that? If you don't store your treasures in heaven, you're actually storing them in hell. Because that's what Jesus was, was, this is what Jesus was explaining, to store your treasures in heaven. If you don't, and you don't believe there's a judgment, if you don't believe there's wrath, then you're actually doing it in hell. Pastor, you're scaring me. This is not an encouraging Sunday morning message. I came here to, you know, to really be encouraged and uplifted. Keep going. The bad news comes first. And if you know the bad news, you run to the cross. You run to this and you hang on to it even tighter because you realize there is no escape from the judgment of God. That was left to me. It's up to me. It was left up to me. There's no escape. However, I can't presume on the kindness of God that he's just going to let me go because I'm so nice. Right? You are storing for yourself treasures in Hell, you literally are storing up wrath for the day of wrath in Revelation. This is the day of the Lord. Who will God judge? That's the question, right? Who will God judge? Everyone who's done wrong. That's what verses 6 through 12, uh, 11 are all about. Who will God judge? Everyone who does wrong. You, If you approved it or condemned it, uh, sorry, verses 1 through 5. But, uh, even if I preached against it, think about this. I can preach against sin. And, and convince people that sin is wrong. And I could be an ardent opponent of sin. That doesn't keep me away from the judgment of God if I practice it. You see the point? You could stand on a corner and say, sin is wrong and sin is this. And people could actually repent of it. Praise God. But then if you practice it, you don't escape it. I could stand here all day, pound the podium. Sin is bad. Sin is bad. Sin is bad. But if I go home and I practice those things that I just said were bad because it's my secret life, then all I've done is store up for, store up wrath. Because I might even convince, no, not me. I'm good. I preached. Don't, don't you hear my message, Lord? Lord, you just heard me talk about Romans 1, through and 2, and 3. I preach against sin, Lord. Yeah, but you preached it right, but you didn't do it. You didn't do it. And that's what God says. Those who do it, right? It's, it's hypocritical to say it and not do it. Hypocrisy is dreadful. Hypocrisy is dreadful. And so God has divided groups, two groups. You're going to see here, those who do good and those who do evil. Verse 6, sorry, verse 7. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek glory, but those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth. So God divides humanity into two groups, those who do good and those who do evil. It's interesting, isn't it? The question right away you say, well, Pastor, I am not neither good nor evil. I'm somewhere in between. I'm neither a saint. I'm neither a sinner. I'm somewhere in between. And the natural question, well, why would God divide groups into doing good and doing evil if nobody really does good or evil 
mixed together. Why would he divide those two? Because the point that Paul is making is, verse 7 says, those who persevere in doing good. Those who persevere in doing good, God has a good outcome. God has a good outcome. What is the outcome? Glory, honor, immortality, and eternal life. Think about this particular thing. Think of deeds as seeds. Seeds. You plant seeds. Your actions become seeds in your life. If you do good, the Bible says, you would plant the seed, and what's going to come out is glory, honor, immortality, and eternal life. That's good, isn't it? Praise the Lord. But if you are evil, if you do evil, selfish, ambitious, do not obey the truth and obey unrighteousness, there's wrath. We know what that is, chapter 1. Indignation, that means fury. That means it's just an intense heat toward uh, sin. Tribulation, outside things that happen to us, outside things, outside trouble. And then uh, tribulation and distress, inside turmoil. Well, that's what happens when you do, when you plant seeds for evil. So there's, there's the two groups. You want to plant good, do good. If you want to plant evil, plant evil. And what you get out of it, what trees grow up from that, and you'll see it. You'll get tribulation, distress, wrath, indignation. You want to do good, you get glory, mortality, and life. Nothing wrong with it. So Paul is making a clear case. The only problem is, what makes you good? That's the question you got to ask. What's good? So if I ask you a question, what does good mean? How many commandments do I have to keep in order to be good? Anybody? No? You guys are way too smart. Can I keep one and be good? About two. About 75% is better than average, right? And so one of the questions that I've always asked people is, what makes a good Christian? Keeping the commandments? Is that a good Christian? Yeah, 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 yeah. Keeping the commandments. Well, how many? One, two, three. Does that make you a good Christian? Well, uh, you know, you begin to reason the fact that, wait a minute, I can keep seven of them, but the other three I don't keep? And No, maybe eight. Then you get to nine. Then you get to ten, and you go, oh, that's what God means by good. See, the point is, verse seven, those who by perseverance do good. That's a key word there. What do you mean by that? Perseverance means continuing. You continually do good 24 hours a day. That's the good. You want to be good, listen to God's standard. God's standard is if you want life, immortality, eternal life, don't you want that? Then do continually good. You guys good? All right. Have a good day. Enjoy the service. The rest of the day. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Do good. And if you do that... You will get eternal life, immortality. What else do you get? Glory, honor. Oh, praise the Lord. Anybody here for a challenge? Continually good, 24 hours a day, right? All the time in your personality, with all your mind, with all your strength, to keep up continually 100%, not often, but continually growing and growing and growing. Pastor, I don't know what you're saying, but nobody can do that. Yes. And you're getting the point of Paul. He's condemning us all as guilty. All of us as guilty. How many commandments you need to keep to be good? All of them. What does James and Galatians tell us? If you broke one, you broke them all. 
Cursed is upon every man who tries to keep, who doesn't try to keep the whole law. If you try to keep the whole law, which is 10 out of 10, it's not bad. Well, there's more. There's 603 others, so a total of 613. Have a good time. I don't like spiders, and I can keep that commandment. I don't like insects, and I don't have to eat them. Don't eat insects, don't eat spiders. Commandment number one, fulfilled. Amen. Praise the Lord. How about the other 612? Not so good, right? Not so good about immorality. Not so good about your thought life, especially the way Jesus interpreted it, right? None of it, none of us can be good. That's the point. But what about evil? How much evil does it take to be evil? Did you notice that Paul doesn't say those who continuously, continually do evil? He just says those who do evil. How, many, how much does it take to do evil? According to the Bible, one. If you just did it once, according to the Bible, you're evil. <gasps> I find that incredibly offensive. You call me evil. and I try. And I know this is the point. It's a mix, isn't it? It's a mix of good. It's a mix of evil. Well, if God's standard is good 100%, then I'm not so good. But if God's standard is you do one evil, and you're evil. And God's, guess what? All of us are not so good. We're all evil. This is God's standard. By what standard is God judging us? Well, he doesn't get to the law here. But the group that does good, he'll get this. The group that does bad, he'll get this. What am I going to get? Tribulation, distress. What else? Indignation and wrath. That's what awaits me if I'm not in the good category. And how do you get into the good category? You got to do it 100% all the time with all your personality, soul, mind, and strength. We're not in the good category. Which there's only another category, which I don't mean to insult your intelligence, but if you're in the other category, you get the other seeds, the sprouting. Indignation, tribulation, right? Evil. I told you this chapter wasn't fun. You've got to deal with it in your own mind for a week and turmoil in your heart about it. But there's more. If the Bible ended there, I say, you know what? Forget it. We're all doomed. There's no point in living because we're all not so good. But the Bible and even the book of Romans don't end that way because God says it doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile, if you're rich, poor, black, white, doesn't matter. God does not show partiality. If you do good, this is what you get. If you do evil, this is what you get. But can I talk to God about it? No. Can I talk to God about it? Because in verse 12 says, for the law is introduced here. The law is introduced. For all have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. I've got to finish. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. How can God condemn a person that doesn't know what the law is? How can God condemn a person who never heard of Jesus, the Bible and the gospel and things like that? How can he do that? Um, the law is introduced. And from this point, it's going to be law and dealing with the law and how it relates to the gospel. This is very, very important. The Jews had a tremendous advantage. They had the law of God, his heart for humanity on print and paper. Right there, but they wrote it in paper. It was clear to them that the law was exactly what God wanted for humanity. This is the standard that God had. The Jews 
had no excuse. They knew it. They knew it quite well, 613. And um, Jesus said, if you hear my words and you don't do it, you're building on sand. That's what Jesus said. You don't do what I say, you're building on sand. But, and this is quite interesting because I relate to the Jewish people like the way Christians are in America today. You're raised a Christian. You're raised in this country. Your mom and dad pray for you. You're going to church, Sunday school. Guess what? You know about the Bible like the Jews knew about the law of God. You knew it exactly. They, they didn't need to be told. They knew it. It was been in writ. It's writing. It's right there. You bring it with you in church every Sunday or Saturday or Wednesday, whenever you meet, right? And so if you... If you agree with the Bible, does that make you all right? If you just, you know, you hear me and you say, oh, man, yes, that's right. I agree with you. Does that make you right? Absolutely not. In fact, it's the biggest, I'll tell you, one of the biggest deceptions by the devil in the churches. It's that which I explained. That you hear a message and you go, right on, I agree. And you don't go home and you go home and don't do it. It's the biggest deception that you can say, I've done I did my part. I went to church. I heard it. I agreed. But what did you do with it? I forgot about it already. Right? That's the biggest deception. Because Jesus says, when you hear it, do it. And this is what God's word is for Gentiles as well. As it says here, for the Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles here have to do with the, the world. This world here. Gentiles, non-Jews. They don't know God's word. They don't know the law. They didn't ever heard of Moses. To the Jew, God wrote it in tablets of stone. To the Gentiles, God wrote it somewhere else. Where did he write it? Verse 14. When Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are law unto themselves and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Wait a minute. God's written two kinds of things. To the Jew, he wrote it in tablets and gave it to them. Moses, take it down, take it down the mountain. First day on the job, Moses, he broke it. Idolatry, got it, broke it, got the second one, gave it to them. To the people that didn't know the law, or didn't know Moses, or didn't know Israel, God wrote it in their hearts. And he wrote two very specific things in people's hearts and conscience. One, there is a God, Romans 1. You can open your eyes, you can look at nature and say, there's no doubt there's a God. Pagans know that there's a God. The second thing is, he wrote it in their conscience to do good, to good do to someone. Even gangsters know how to take care of their own family. Even hardcore criminals know that they're not to hurt their own family or their own friends. They protect them. Even pagans, archaeologists and anthropologists have gone into areas. There's, there's no contact with the, with the developed world. And guess what they found? They found that in, in some not all of them, but in some societies, adultery and theft was punishable. Never heard the gospel, never heard about God. These were pagan societies. How did they know? This anthropologists are going, well, we must have evolved from some kind of goo or some kind of thing, and it happened. No, the law of God was in their hearts. They knew something. They knew you're not supposed to take someone's wife, and they knew you're not supposed to steal. They knew that instinctively. That's what Romans says. Jew and Gentiles are on the same boat. Why? Because if the Jews don't follow what they know written down in their law, if they don't do it, they're guilty. They have a responsibility, high responsibility. But the Gentiles who don't know God, don't know the law, 
if they don't do their conscience, if they don't follow through with their conscience, guess what? They're also guilty. Jew and Gentile on the same boat. Both guilty. One guilty of not following what there's written. The other one guilty for not following what they know instinctively. That's what Paul is addressing. But the, 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 the pagan one, the Gentile one, they could know God and they can know that there is right and wrong. It's written in their hearts. But if they violate that, they're also guilty. The Jews, guilty. They had their law in their, in their, in their Bibles, in their Old Testament, guilty. You and I, maybe never heard of Jesus, never cared about Jesus, pagan, things like that, our ancestors. If they don't follow through with their conscience, they're also guilty. Same boat. Both under the judgment of God. That's why missionaries are so important to go to the ends of the earth because people are guilty and they need to be set free in Jesus. That's why they go. Not because people are innocent. It's because people are already guilty. They're violating already something that they know instinctively and they don't follow through with it. We don't preach the gospel here in this area and things like that because people, you know, we just want people to be nice. That's not what we do. We do it because people are already guilty and they're not living up to the standards that they already know in their hearts that they're not supposed to be doing that. They never have a Bible. What makes you think that they know? Because instinctively God has written in their conscience and in their hearts. They know that that's not right. And when you show them the gospel, they realize the conviction comes in. Bam! Because they know that they're wrong. Now, people can fight against conviction, and they can suppress it. That's true. And sin against their conscience, that's the problem when they reject it. But people know that they're guilty because the law condemns them. When you show people the law, they go, see, you knew that wasn't right, but you still did it. That means you're guilty, bro. That means you're guilty. And so this is chapter 2. But when's the good news coming? Well, the fact of the matter is this. Paul is addressing something. In a very real way, all of us are guilty. Not one person can stand up and say, you know what, this is a bunch of hogwash. I'm all right. I don't know anything. There's no judgment. There's... And it's exactly what Paul says. If you say that you're storing up treasure, uh, tre not treasures in heaven, treasures in hell, you, you don't think there's wrath coming? You realize that you're under the wrath of God already by not believing and trusting in Jesus. Because the gospel makes so much sense now. Because although men... No man is in the good category. Here's what you tell people. I'm telling you this. Even though you're not going to be able to get in by being good, is another way. There is another way. No one's going to be able to get in for being good. Sorry. No one. And all of us are in the evil category by doing one evil. So how can you get in? Only if God declares you justified. Only if God in his mercy turns to you and says, I know you're not good. And I know you didn't do good. And I know you've never done good consistently 100% all the time. But I am going to declare you justified. Justified means just like if you've never done it. I'm going to turn to you and by my mercy and grace, I'm going to give you a pardon a forgiveness, and all the evil I am going to forgive. And the reality of the justification is I'm going to put it on my son, who's the only person who has ever done good. Jesus of Nazareth is the only person who walked on this earth as a man 
who did 100% good continually. I mean, he lived this life. His whole personality was de dedicated to being good toward God and toward others. Didn't have grudges, didn't, didn't go against people, didn't backstab them, didn't gossip them. He never, imaginations did not go that way. He never used his body to satisfy himself. He never went in any of those directions 24-7 for 33 years of his life. Never did one thing against the law of God or his conscience. He followed perfectly what God said written in the law of Moses and what God said in his own heart. He perfectly did it, completely right all the time. And because he's the only one that's good, he can come to our rescue. He can come to our rescue, and that's the point of the gospel, isn't it? God came to seek sinners. God came to seek evil people. If you're in that category that says, Pastor, I'm actually in the good category. I really, you know, all the stuff that you say, I'm actually, actually in the really good category. Then Jesus didn't come for you. Jesus didn't come to those who were already healed. He came to those who are sick. And if you find yourself in that category and said, ah, how dreadful it is my life. Like Pilgrim's Progress, when he carried that burden and he realized, oh, that burden was going to lead me to, that sin burden was going to lead me to the city of destruction. That his city was going to be destroyed. And when he realized that the Son of God had paid the penalty of his sins on that cross, that burden fell off and he was able to follow God follow Jesus all the way to the celestial city that's what it comes that's what it becomes it's not for the person who thinks they're good no one's good but the people really think they are then they don't qualify for salvation because the only people that are qualified for salvation is those who have sinned and those who have broken God's law why would God reward them you're right why should he reward people that are sinners why should he reward people that are not so good? He doesn't do it because of you. He did it because he answered the prayer of Jesus. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He stood in that place. He realized that there's no way for you to get there. So what should I do? Knowing that Jesus has done this. He stood in my place as if he's and treated me as if he's never, if I've never done anything wrong. Because that's what justification is. He treats Jesus, God treats Jesus as if he did your sins and the evil that you and I have done. Jesus takes the blame for it. So don't blame Timothy, don't blame Tony, don't blame Gabby. Blame me. I am now responsible for that sin that they committed. So God pours out His wrath on His Son. And he lets you go. But letting you go doesn't mean you live for yourself now. Now, because you've been bought with the price, you belong to him now. So what can I do? Turn to chapter 3, verse 19, and we're done. What can I do? What can I do when I hear this magnificent story of God's son coming to my rescue, coming to save sinners just like me, just like you? Now we know, chapter 3, Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth be closed and all the world be become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You know what you do when God 
shows you the law and you're wrong, don't justify yourself. But you don't know what kind of day I had. You don't know what she did to me. Or you don't know what he did to me. And you don't know what those people did, you know, they. You don't know what they did to me. No. May all have mouth closed. Why? Let the law convict you. Let the law of God deal with your heart. Let it sink in the reality that you've broken his law. Don't try to justify yourself before God. Agree with him. Agree with him because by agreeing with him, it allows, verse 21, but now apart from the law of righteousness, of, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The Bible will tell you the righteousness of God. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there's no distinction because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. You try to justify yourself before God, you don't get his justification. Let him justify. Keep quiet. Agree with God. Let the law convict you. Because when the law convicts you, guess what? It humbles you. It brings you to your knees. And then you can cry out to God. And say, save me, forgive me. I need you. I need you to save a sinner. And then the mercy of God clicks on. The grace of God comes for that sinner and says, trust me. Faith. Believe. Be faithful to my word. I'll save you. Comes by faith. The grace of God comes through faith. And him who died on the cross for us, being justified. Why? Because all of us have sinned. Not one of us is the, it's, 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 it's above the need for the grace of God. All of us need it. But the one that's going to get it is the one that goes, you're right, God. I'm not going to open my mouth and justify me before you. You know all my sins. The secrets are going to be revealed anyway. I better, I better reveal it now. <laughs> I am not that good. I am a sinful person. I am guilty of chapter 1 of Romans. I am not here to tell you that some saint that kind of grew up in the church and never done anything wrong. I'm guilty of that. But you know that? That even though that is reality, the grace of God follows through. Anybody here a sinner? Guilty of Romans 1? Anybody? No one here. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Then you qualify for grace. You qualify because the Son of God came looking for you. You realize when Jesus was on the earth, he was looking for sinners? And because you weren't born, doesn't mean he wasn't looking for you. He knew Timothy. He knew Gloria. He knew my wife before the foundation of the earth. And he was looking for me. And he went to the cross with that thought in mind. I'm looking for you. I want you back. I want you in my kingdom. But you have to admit you're not in this category, in the good category. You have to admit you're evil. You must admit that you've done wrong. 
then I can save you. Because he came for the sick, not for the healthy ones. He came for broken people that need salvation. He didn't come for a museum of saints. He came for broken people that need saving. If you need saving, Jesus will save you. You don't need saving, and you're in the category that are good. My friend, you are self-deceived. Self-deceived means that no one can talk you out of it. Only God can convict you out of it. But realize that you're not so good. Stand next to the law, the Ten Commandments, and realize that you have to keep it 100% perfectly every day with all your personality, all your person. And if you haven't, then the best thing to do is run to that cross behind me, not to that particular one, but you know which one, the one that he died for, for us, and then beg him to save you. Beg him to forgive you. And if you're a good, respectable church member, this is just for us as well. Never presume on the grace of God. Never say, ah, I'm a good, been here all 20 years. You ought to forgive me. But get away from sin. Keep it at a long distance out of your, out of your reach. And keep trusting in Jesus. Because it's thrill, still grace through faith for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we're so thankful that through Christ we can receive his righteousness. His righteousness alone that we sang today. It's all about the righteousness of Christ. It's not even about my sins. It's not even about me. It's about Jesus. He's the center stage. Dressed in his righteousness alone. Faultless standing before the throne. Not because I've done so good. It's because he is so good. And he saved me. From myself. And from my sins. So Lord. Thank you. And we could agree that, Lord, we qualify because we haven't done good. And we need you. We need your grace, your mercy today. Blessed be your name, Lord God, for saving us and taking sinful people like us and dressing them in righteousness and justifying them before a holy God who doesn't see sin anymore. He sees righteousness of Christ Jesus. Thank you. And Lord, may we continue to keep our righteous robes clean. And may we not tread on sin or deal with sin, Lord God, but and not assume on your grace, but totally rely, Lord, on your mercy for us to forgive us, Lord God, and never assume, Lord God, that we can continue in a sinful lifestyle and still be okay. We ask you to help us, Lord. We ask you to empower us with your Holy Spirit today, tomorrow, going forward. Help us to love, help us to love, help us, Lord God, so that we can love one another in such a way. We praise you and honor you with all of our hearts and mind and strength, Lord. And as we sing, we're going to sing this song, Lord, let it come from a heart that is so thankful, that it's so appreciated, that it's so reliant on your righteousness alone that we would sing with passion and fervency because it's really not about us and what we've done, but it's really all about what Jesus came to do and he saved us. And he has a kingdom that awaits those who believe in him. Honor, immortality, eternal life, glory. In Jesus, amen.